Welcome to the podcast, Not So Serious, presented by Marketing Mag. This is the podcast about communications, but not so serious. Each episode, we're going to talk to a brand or a business about how they used their marketing to make waves, not ripples. From starting branding agency Willow and Blake to the now cult-like status of coffee scrub Frank Brody, today we have branding queen Jess Hatsis in the studio with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jess. Thank you, Liv. I've never been called a branding queen before. That's awesome. Yeah, I, t- I was looking at um, I was again on Frank's Frank Brody's um website today, and I was like, oh, I just love I love the branding behind it. It's Thanks. so clever. Willow and Blake was the first thing that you guys ever did. You and your business partner Bree. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about that story and? and how that led to Frank? Yes. Willow, I'm a copywriter by trade. So that's how we sort of started working in business together. We were both working for different businesses. Brie was at Broadsheet and I was at a company called 360 Agency, which was an arm of Warner Music. And we had a third business partner at the time as well. We were writing Willow and Blake as a blog. Like that's how old Willow and Blake is. <laughs> Blogs were still a thing. And for us, it was a place where we could give a home to content that we really loved that just wasn't edited to within an inch of its life. And I think people really responded to the rawness of the content. We started to build up a bit of a following and from there we decided, why not launch a business from here? We saw a bit of a gap in the market to really focus in on copywriting. Mm. There were design specialists, PR specialists, but nobody giving that much love to the written word. So Willow and Blake was born out of a really simple idea to do that and we were young and naive and had no (laughs) idea what we were getting into. And fast forward... 12 years later, and we're grown into a full-service branding agency mm. now. So our specialty is in direct-to-consumer and challenger brands. We create them from scratch and launch them out into the world and then look at how we assist our clients with their ongoing branding needs. And it's just my favourite thing in the world. We absolutely love it because we're sick of seeing – we were sick of seeing so many bland brands. It's the best way I can describe them. Yeah. Really cookie cutter or a lot of agencies just replicating what they were seeing from other companies, which is the laziest form of marketing or branding on the earth. Yeah. (laughs) Find a different job. I know. And I think that that is like such an amazing time to be doing that because I think more and more, probably in the last four or five years, I've seen copy and gone, oh, they're daring to do something. They like, and I just think you guys were able to really like lead that. And I guess that that leads us to Frank Body because that is massive. It is obviously, I think it's got such a cult like status and it started this whole coffee scrub movement. Do you want to talk about how you ended up going from Willow and Blake as branding into beauty? Yeah, I had no intentions of getting into beauty, <laughs> neither did any of my co founders. It was a challenge for us to bring together something working in the e commerce space, something in health and wellness utilizing social and creating a cool brand. That was really how it started. We were very interested in moving out of service-based models, which Mm. we were all in and looking at how a product-based business could be grown. And we also have our other respective businesses, but we didn't realize Frank was quite going to take over our lives in the way that it did. When we were bouncing around a whole different bunch of ideas and it was one of my business partners, Steve, that came up with the coffee scrub and he works in a bunch of cafes and will own them actually mm. and had customers come in and ask for the leftover coffee grinds. And so that was where the product came from. We, he started learning about a lot of the different ways people were using the coffee scrub and we mixed up a whole bunch of things that we had in the kitchen to create what is now called the original coffee scrub. And we're looking at this stuff and, you know, people may have heard this story before, but I always describe it as it looked like dirt in a bag. You couldn't really dress this product up in bells and whistles. And we just had to be very honest and very frank about what we were dealing with here. And we were coming at it from a very consumer-led perspective. You know, there's a lot of BS in the beauty industry. Mm. 
a lot of scientific jargon, full of hyperbole, and it just doesn't make sense to consumers or they're led down the garden path and they buy into products worth hundreds of dollars that don't deliver results. We'd had that disappointing experience and we didn't want that to be the experience that our consumers had. We wanted to give them something that there was a brand that they could actually connect with and meant a little bit more to them than some guy sitting on the top floor of a giant tower in New York, which was where all the beauty products were coming from at the time. It's really nice now when you fast forward nearly 10 years since we launched how much more democratized the space is. And it's, I love seeing so many startups coming out, women-led businesses, you know, people actually who use the product are leading the businesses these days, which is a really nice change to see. And it's accessible. You had an accessible price, you had an accessible product. What I always loved about Frank was that you just said it as it was, get down and dirty. You're going to look really dirty while you're doing it. And you kind of made a way to look dirty, sexy and cool and funny because because of what you were saying, like the rawness with it, there was, you just didn't hold back. And I think that that is really important. And I guess that that leads me to the branding and how great you guys are with copy. When you started, Frank, how important was it for you guys to go, we're going to cut the bullshit? Oh, just number one priority, to be honest. There was a few factors for us. So like we just touched on, we were sick of what we were seeing in the beauty industry. It was boring and it Mm. was, there was a real lack of honesty in the way that companies were dealing with their customers. We knew we were going to be launching the brand on social because we had no money to do anything else. Yeah. So it was 100% <laughs> organic content marketing strategy. Like you had to use your smarts, which I think is where the best ideas come from. Yeah. Money makes you dumb. For us, trying to cut through a lot of the BS we're seeing in the industry, looking at how we could create something that people could actually engage with in a platform that was dominated by peer-to-peer communication. I can't come into that space as a corporate company yeah. and talk to you in third person and completely disregard the way that the platform was being used. So Mm. that led a lot of the decision-making for us. This idea of being frank and honest led us to create the character of Frank. We thought, we're playing in social, we'll talk in first person. This character gives us the opportunity to really connect with our customers and build an emotional relationship with them that's beyond just product. And that also then helped to form the instructions on like how to use the product and how to engage back with the brand and We wanted people to replicate that cheeky tone of voice and sexual innuendo is not new to marketing, but for the first time to us, it actually felt relevant. Yes. And you were owning that as well. We were 100% owning that and we still do. You know, you were naked using the product, talking about nudity made sense. It's, I always liken it to, you know, like the Chico Roll example where she's just a half naked woman thrown across a motorbike. Yeah. And I don't understand, I still don't understand why to this day. (laughs) Well, we know why, but we don't know why. (laughs) There was a real lack of sexual empowerment in women-led brands or women-focused brands, and that's changed today. But at the time, it was really different, and we wanted to kind of cut through that. Obviously, you had really kind of small margins and small budgets to work with when you were starting out. That's why social media made sense for you guys. Also, you were sick of traditional beauty products. So therefore, the influencer space, you guys really owned that very early on. And what I see that as doing is a couple of things. One, you created your own economy where people were then like being influenced by the influencers to do it themselves at home. So users were then doing it and you weren't even having to pay for that sort of thing. And then also real, this was pre very intense filters and things like that, that we're seeing now. And so it felt like when you're talking about old school beauty, they're the untouchable retouched kind of images that you're seeing. And so you guys were able, like you were really, really early in that influencer space. How important was that for you guys to have real women at the forefront of it? It was a no brainer task. There was no other option. We always thought that the people representing the brand should look exactly like 
the women walking the streets Mm. and the men, but we are predominantly used by women. We knew that UGC was just part of the landscape at the time. It's quite different now. I think people Mm. have taken a very curated approach to social media (laughs) these days. And we were really fortunate. I think luck plays such a huge part in why brands succeed. And we were there at the right time. It was influencers were just emerging and we'd had a lot of success with a couple of our clients at Willow and Blake through what we call key opinion leader strategy at the time. Mm -hmm. There was not a whole amount in terms of like our network. It was just sheer volume. We were just emailing thousands of (laughs) people and trying to build relationships with people that we didn't know, seeding the product to them and hoping that they would take photos of it. And at the time it was the real blogger community and they did. They did it for the love of sharing information and trying new products and it's completely different today. Yes. And it was also they would have been trying to launch their own kind of influence. So all the they were baby influencers. Let's it was twenty thirteen. Yeah, is that it was, right? Twenty thirteen. That yeah. is I mean, I think we we're all using like sepia like <laughs> yeah, everything. Yeah. Everything had to look very vintage. Yes. And yeah. we were still taking quite blurry photos of our food and things like that. So people were still experimenting. And then what you guys did that was so remarkable. And when I was telling people who I was interviewing f- and that it was Frank Body, and even if they hadn't heard of that, if I just said, you know, the coffee, scr- they just know it. So yeah. when you first started to see users, Instagram users that you hadn't approached, then doing what you had, like what you guys had set up, how exciting was that for you to see that you had created this kind of economy within that? Yeah, it's any marketer's dream. Yeah. Right? And I didn't <laughs> yeah. consider myself a marketer at the time. I was just a young kid who liked writing. It was the ultimate for us that it started to become its own little machine and it would do its thing. But it was also really purposeful. It didn't happen by accident. You mm. know, like I touched on, we were reaching out to thousands of people and we had flyers that went out with every single product instructing people on how to create the perfect selfie and post that on Instagram. Yeah. So there was a sense of manufacturing it, but you had to do it in a way that people, it was their choice. No one was being forced into doing anything mm. and they liked what that picture said about them and the brands that they curated as part of their lifestyle. So it was kind of a mutually beneficial thing for everyone. Of course. With reaching out to the influencers, did you have a network of people that you already knew that were kind of entering into that space that helped helped you out or you just would blind email anyone? No, we didn't know anyone. We didn't come from a, you know, we didn't have those personal networks of people that were playing Mm. in that space. It was spending hours and hours on Instagram trying to find these people and then you know, DMing them, getting their email, crafting the email and the brief to them, getting their address, sending the product, following up again. It would take, you know, a couple of months from the time you find someone to the time that they would post. Yeah. Now I think that everyone's community has someone who's playing in the influencer space. Yeah. But there wasn't actually a lot going on locally at the time. We we worked with a lot of European and um, American influencers because they were the ones driving the early adopter or the trend-setting kind of influences, and then we'd see that trickle-down effect to consumers here in Australia rather than influencers at the time. We yeah. didn't really have much of an influencer community here. Talking about kind of the journey that influencers have taken in general, how important do you think that the micro versus macro is now compared to then? So at the time when you were doing it, were you trying to get people with the biggest reach or were you trying to get people who maybe had a small reach but they had a brand, like it mirrored what Frank was trying to do? Like there was, um, you know, some synergy there because I feel like back then probably with influencers, you just wanted to get people to use the product and now it's now that there's such a saturation of the market, you need them to be um, like way more aligned with what 
what your brand is doing. Do you think that that's taken that journey as well? A hundred percent. If you could ask me about influencers each week, and I'll probably have a different opinion (laughs) on what they mean for us as a brand and just in general. At launch, the concept of micro-influencers didn't even exist. Yeah. So it was really just key opinion leaders and the more followers they had, the better. There was a lack of authenticity in the content from influencers at that time. Mm. What I saw people tend to gravitate towards was a very stereotypical image of beauty. Yes. And that was something that we wanted to break. So we still worked with influencers like that because you shouldn't discriminate, but we were trying really hard to find influencers that represented other bodies, other ways of being. (laughs) And oh my God, it was really difficult. Yes. It's a lot easier now, thankfully. So you can actually work with people that really represent the values of the brand. And I found that quite hard at the start. But in terms of the micro macro question, Mm. that's gone back and forth. It changes year to year. We really shifted away from macro influences more into that micro space. And we've come back out of that again. We actually find that mid-tier to macro influencer a lot more effective if you're looking at it really from a conversion perspective. Yes. So yeah, very commercially, but we, I can't take credit for this because I am that person that sits there and just asks my team why things are doing certain things and tells them to reevaluate <laughs> it because that's what you do when you're the boss now. We have an amazing influencer marketing manager. And at the start of the year, we just did a huge assessment on the whole space. What's going on in influencers? How do we really want to treat this? And we looked at dividing it into conversion. So there's those influencers that we're engaging with, expecting a direct return immediately within 24 to 48 hours of yep. posting. And then those clout influencers who we're working with purely because we align with them from a values perspective and we want to forge long-term relationships with them. And it's not about driving sales. And they maybe tend to be a little bit more in the micro space. Yes. But yep. we're finding micro influencers and rightly so are trying so hard to build their brand. They're working with so many brands that it's really having an impact on their ability to convert because if I'm a follower of them, I'm seeing a new product that's being pushed every single post. Yes. So I think if you're an influencer um, in the micro space, it's probably something to be a little bit more aware of. I am really interested in the part that you said about people and influencers selling too much. Do you see this as a problem now? Because I I hear a massive criticism of influencers that it feels disingenuous when they are constantly selling something new, like every Mm -hmm. single post feels sponsored. We notice it in the results. That's the best way I can articulate it. So That's so interesting. It's such an interesting space because you're dealing with somebody's personal platform and their personal brand. They have the right to run it however they want. But at the same time, influencer costs rose 42% year on year from last year to this year. You know, it's a business for them. So when it's a business, then I find most influencers that we work with are really respectful of wanting to understand how it impacts the business. But of course, there are influencers out there who aren't paying attention to that. If you want to treat it as a business, you have to really understand the benefit to the client that you're working with and the brand that's paying you is the client at the end of the day. I find that when we have influencers who are on board with that journey of, you know, blocking out space either side of our posts, allowing it to actually have some proper airtime, it's better for us, it's better for their audience, everyone gets a better result. Yeah. But how hard is it to have those conversations with someone? Not very, because really? it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be anything more than really matter of fact. Like, hey, this is what we noticed when yeah. we worked with influencers before. Would you be open to taking this approach with us? 
Influencers now, the, the really successful ones um, are business people first and foremost, and I'm seeing that more and more. Some of these original influencers who just aren't business minded, they're not able to keep up with it all. They're, they, they're doing the same thing. They're really filtering their photos or they're selling anything that comes into their inbox. And I just see it's not the following rate. I feel like that's such an old school way of looking at their engagement rate is mm-hmm. low. Yep. <laughs> like low, low. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this old school influencers with, you know, tens of millions of followers and the interaction with their posts is so low. Yeah. We are finding a lot of success with influencers who we would consider maybe mid-tier macros. So, you know, 100, 200,000 followers, but they've built a very authentic story. It seems to be happening a lot in the US as well. Yes. Um, You know, they'll build a persona, an online persona based around a tragic event in their life, for example. Mm. And so they've built a community of people who can relate to that then there's so much trust created in that community recommendations from them go a lot further yeah but they're extremely extremely particular with who they work with because they know their audience trusts them so much so yeah. that's I love working with that type of influencer because if they choose to work with us it means they really do like the brand and the product and so there's that real genuine element of the recommendation and yeah. we see that in the sales yeah everyone's got to find their sweet spot and that was ours that's great. I, the genuine ones that have their own story that then when you're able to tune in and out of what their story is as well. So you have people, I, f- I know that there's a couple of Australian influencers that I watch where they share just enough about, about themselves that you want to kind of keep checking back in oh, and yeah. going like, how is their house sale? How is this? How's that relationship? Like all of that. Like it's like a new wave of like gossip magazines or something like that. Like I'm not picking up who anymore when I'm getting my hair done. Like I'm on Instagram and catching up with who broke up with who? Oh my God, yeah. Like, We're so voyeuristic by nature. Yes. The, the way in which we engage with that just changes over time from TV to magazines and now it's social. Yeah. And what do you think about accounts like Celeb Spellcheck or something like that where they call out influencers when they make mistakes? Let's, I'll, I'll use that. <laughs> I think accountability is really important, but I find a lot of those accounts go far past accountability just to straight out bullying. Bullying, yes, yeah, yeah. And I'm not on board with that. There's a real keyboard warrior, you know, thing going on in that space and they get the story wrong a lot of the time. They don't let mm. the influencer or the brand really tell comment that. and tell their side of the story. So I think if you want full transparency, it needs to go both ways. I noticed this through social, through, you know, we get a lot of feedback from consumers and customers who want to see certain things from us they don't always do what they like. They'll ask us to do something, but then what they do in return seems to be really at odds with yeah. what they've been requesting from brands. So it's a really, really interesting time to be a brand, especially in social. And I can see that from my team, even there's so much apprehension in everything that they do because they're terrified of being picked apart. Yes. And it's not that people shouldn't be able to pick you apart. It's more the manner in which it's occurring. It's so, it's fast moving. It just becomes a runaway train. Yeah. And you've got, you know, maybe junior mid-tier staff who are handling an account that's talking to a million different, a million people. Yes. They're terrified and they'll come to me frequently with questions about how to respond to things. And yeah, I don't like the sort of fear-mongering culture growing within influencers and social. I think that that's a really good point where it's it's fear-mongering. I think that um, we demand genuine connection and then when we see someone genuinely mess up and need to apologise, 
the pitchforks are already out. Oh, yeah. That person's on fire. Yes. Yeah. I do agree with things need to be genuine. I'm so about that. But when I say that, I want to see like all the scars, like I want to see it all, like be really genuine. And I do you see the next generation is really demanding that as as well? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to identify who is asking for what mm. on social. I think it started with generations before us, yeah. you know, they've been asking for transparency. People have been asking for transparency in you know, genuine connection for a long time. I think that the way each generation goes about it is really different. And yeah. it's just now that this platform is available for younger people yeah. to be very loud and vocal about what they want. And there is more of those, what we were talking about before, I guess, real bodies and things like that that's coming through, which is that's a really nice kind of next wave that we're seeing on yeah. social media. Like, um, you know, there was a brand launch only yesterday from Abby Chatfield and it was just really real bodies and everything like that. And I just thought, this is nice. <laughs> yeah, it should. I I definitely remember, you know, being in my mid, late 20s when I was really using Instagram very religiously. Mm. I'm pretty content in who I am as a person, but there was a period in my life where I felt like rubbish because I was comparing myself to these filtered images online and I can't imagine someone younger and in a more vulnerable headspace what they've been dealing with for such a long time. So it's nice to just see what exists in the world reflected online. Yes, and I just think that that all is going back to your original ethos, which was we're sick of seeing these beauty products being represented by completely unattainable images and now, you know, people we've I think we've been saying it for years and something like Frank was a really early adopter and you guys made huge splashes because of that. Like it was girls that well, I mean in some cases it was girls that I recognized from school and yeah. things like that. Like girls that I knew and I was like, "Oh my god." And it would be like the equivalent of when I was 14 buying a Dolly magazine and someone that I knew was in like the Dolly model competition and it, you just felt like Oh, there's a chance for yeah, that girl who real I grew people up with. do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not all just like through TV screens. In the next episode of Not So Serious, Jess goes into that cheeky slurpy campaign, why tone of voice matters, and the roadblocks that have come with social change. 